Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. My guest today is Catherine Gell, business leader, author, speaker, and political innovator who has taken on the ambitious undertaking of trying to reform how American politics works. In her youth, she was once a young Republican before she moved into the libertarian stage of her political life. She then found a home of sorts while helping former Chicago mayor, Richard Daley, and a former U.S. Senator by the name of Barack Obama get elected. She then admitted during our chat that she was more politically homeless than she knew while she passed through the five stages of political grief. In 2020, with Harvard Business School professor Michael Porter, Kel published her book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Heady stuff indeed. The overarching theme is turning politics into something that actually works for the people politicians are supposed to serve. We are looking to change what it takes to gain power, Gell said. So what to do? Gell advocates for final five voting. In this system, candidates enter a primary regardless of party. The thought is that this will force candidates to earn a spot in a general election versus a system which currently is not competitive. Alaska approved this system in a 2020 ballot measure. Gal noted that for the 2024 elections, there are signature drives taking place in Missouri and Nevada. She also added that California and Washington adopted the two primaries in which the top two finishers advanced to the general election, regardless of party affiliation. After spending time with Catherine, I was truly encouraged about our elections for the first time in many years. As someone who has grown less than optimistic about our democracy of late, Catherine Gell and Michael Porter have crafted a plan that might just work after all. I hope you learn as much as I did from Catherine. She is quite a special person indeed. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know you have lots of stuff going on, which we will talk about in some detail today. So let me start by saying, I think it's gonna be a lot of fun because for my listeners who are attempting to learn through me a little bit about politics, um, you are a expert and subject matter experts <laughs> are people that we look to on True 30 to help us understand what's going on. And I think as I explained a little bit as we got on camera, True 30 is doing its best to point out the lunacy of the far right, the minoritarian far right and the minoritarian far left. We report on those and we kind of make fun of those and have a lot of fun. You, on the other hand, you and Michael Porter's book which I thought was wonderful, is the exact opposite. You're exploring the dysfunction of our body politic through the systems that are broken and not the people, which I thought was really unique. You also have a very nonpartisan approach, which I thought was clever and way overdue. So I welcome that discussion. And I'm gonna open it up a little bit. Oh, actually, I have to mention this too. The fact that you opened up in your introduction with a David Foster Wallace quote, I just have to comment on that because he's my favorite author by a magnitude of order. I don't know if you've read Infinite Jest, but I just can't stop reading that book. And uh, so that was a great thing for me to see. We can talk about him maybe off Wonderful. camera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, I really enjoyed how you guys deconstructed 
are body politics specific to systems. And so there's a couple of things that I want to read out for our listeners to kind of give an indication of where you guys come from in your book. Um, in a TED talk, which by the way was wonderful, you, you stated that the government is not broken. It's working exactly as it's supposed to. And so that was a cool statement that we can get into. And <clears throat> you talked about this too. This is a book. This book is not about politics. It is not political or partisan. And you were a Democrat who now calls herself a politically homeless centrist independent, <laughs> which I thought was, <laughs> I, thought I can relate to that because I am a, a liberal left-leaning Democrat, um, left center, I should say. And Michael is a longtime year author, Michael Porter. Uh, a Michael is a lifelong Massachusetts Republican, and it would be neither correct nor helpful to assign blame to one side or another, which I think is fantastic because we're talking about systems here. We're not talking about actual behavior because I think we can, there's plenty of indications there. On well, we're, we're definitely bike. talking about the systems has the effect on actual behavior. Yes, yes, end, exactly. I mean, the only thing we do care about is the actual behavior, but yeah. Right, right. The underlying system is where we And go. so the current rules not only wreak havoc on the jobs of our senators and members of Congress, because they too are prisoners, unlike, and just much like us. And so what we want to really get into, I'm going to capture two things that I have here in quotes. Those who haven't succumbed to learned helplessness try to do something about it, often double down on their political party, certain that the other side is the problem. And as you mentioned in your TED Talk, Washington is working exactly how it's designed to work, delivering exactly the results it is designed to deliver because it wasn't designed to work for us, for the citizens, the voters, and the public interest. So why don't we dive a little bit into the system itself that is broken? And you kind of broke it down in your TED talk as bad rule number one, which is the primaries. And I think that might, and you tell me if that's a good place to start because your book has lots oh, in it I'm, that we're never going to get through. <laughs> right, yeah, I'm, so. I'm happy to talk about the primaries because there's no question that if there's only one thing, you know, that we can address, we're going to have to address the primaries. Yes, we're seeing that today in Pennsylvania. It was on the news this morning. I saw uh, people talking about, the 30% rule and how these all things, not only in North Carolina, but Pennsylvania and all these problems with the primaries, because this is the election <laughs> in a lot of different parts of our United States. If you win the primary, kind of a skate right through to the general. So why don't we talk a little bit about that system and, and what you guys have deconstructed in your book? Oh, by the way, for anyone who's watching versus listening, this is the book. It's called The Politics Industry by Catherine Porter, Catherine Gell and Michael Porter. And it's a fabulous book. I read it twice, as I always do with anyone on the show, but that's exactly what we're gonna try and get into today. So again, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Why don't we talk a little bit about the primaries? Yeah, let's, uh, let's start there. I, I will take you back to a time when I was still in business. I sold my company in order to do this work, but um, my career was really in business. And when I was still running um, my company, one of the things I was thinking about doing is having a campaign for businesses in Wisconsin to have primary day off to vote. Cause you know how every once in a while yeah, it yeah. gets said, oh, we need an election. We need the um, November election to be a national holiday. So everybody can yeah. vote. But I wanted to point out actually our general election relative to Congress is really a farce yeah. because the decision, as you just said, Joey, has already been made months and months before in the primary, which is crazy. And I, I didn't talk about it this way in the book, but I am now really trying to highlight this 
the situation for people that we talk a lot about, you know, this person, that person, this drama, that drama. And then we even talk about the systems. And I have a whole book about the systems. But fundamentally, if we can get it down to one thing about the system, let's think about this for a moment. How crazy is it that in our democracy, when millions of people turn out in November, they are turning out to do something to cast a vote that makes no difference. That's that's what's happening because right. in over 85% of the elections, that decision was made in the primary. So their vote is just, you know, an exercise in um, sort of, you know, their civic duty perhaps, but not actually exercising the real, true, fulsome right that a vote should be in a democracy. So I want to bring forth that in all of our talk about voting rights, we're missing something really glaring, which is the right for your vote to matter. Yeah. To matter in who wins, but also very much to matter in what winners do. And if our votes don't matter in that way, well, you know, it's no wonder that we have sort of low turnout, low participation, because people fundamentally know that they're somewhat uh, wasting their time. So now let's come back to a little bit more detail about the primary. So here's the thing. In in red districts, whoever wins the Republican primary is guaranteed to win the general. In blue districts, whoever wins the Democratic primary will win the general. And that is a problem because of who wins. But it, but the most important thing for us to realize is that that is a problem for then what the winners do. Because even right. though we think that the two sides that vote in these party primaries could not be more different than one another, they're actually almost identical in one particular way, which is that the 10% of voters who participate in these determinative for party primaries are defined more than any other single characteristic by how much they hate the other side. Correct. So they send their, the people they elect to Washington, D.C. with a set of um instructions, essentially. And that instruction that they give to the people elected in this system is whatever you do when you get to Washington, D.C., do not reach across the aisle, do not work with the other side, do not find consensus, do not negotiate, do not make a deal, do not find an innovative way forward if it requires us to give up one little tiny thing of what we, you know, might have wanted. And we would rather have gridlock grandstanding and demonizing than have you find a consensus sustainable way forward. So fundamentally, everybody elected in our existing system goes to Washington, D.C., forbidden to actually do the job that we need them to do, which is reach across the aisle, legislate, negotiate, deal make. That is the job of legislating. So it's like in our companies, if we hired people and we said, um, yes, please join our company. So exciting. We have great problems and great opportunities, and we need you to do these things. And then, oh, by the way, if you do those things really well, then in two years, we're going to fire you. Right. right. There's a small subset of people who are going to kick you out of this job if you do it really well. And that is exactly how our system is set up. It is so crazy. It is. It's the old adage of politics is the art of the possible, right? And now it's, you need to be you need to have allegiance to the tribe or we will be primaried, which is another thing. When you actually have a verb <laughs> associated with an election, that's an issue, right? And we're, we've right. changed fundamentally and our politics 
which was historically polarized, but kind of more in show than reality. So if you look at the old Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill days, where everyone back lived in DC and they had dinners together, and maybe they did have some cantankerous discussions online to prove to their base that, hey, I'm here fighting for you. But then they were at dinner, they're like, so Ronnie, <laughs> is there any way we can get this thing pushed through? Well, you know what, Tip, I think we can figure that out, right? So it was like, they actually got stuff done, right? And that was the neat thing. What you're talking to now is no matter where you sit politically, I grew up in rural America. I have a lot of friends that wear red hats and are small C conservatives. And I love these folks just as much as I love all my liberal friends from New York City and San Francisco. But that isn't what's going on in our culture today. What's going on in our culture today is this mass divide. And they do elect a minoritarian candidate that represents, to your point, the most extreme positions of that specific political party. And because of that, the vote itself, and this is, goes back to what you were saying earlier, the incentivize, it's not a, there's no incentive as a voter to go out and do your civic duty anymore when the election was won in the primaries, which you most likely statistically had nothing to do with. And there's no incentive as someone elected through that system to actually do your job and find sustainable ways. Correct. Because then you're going to lose your job. Um, For I, sure. I was on, <laughs> I was on uh, a you know, on like a Zoom event this morning, listening to a presentation from author John Haidt. And he's a social psychologist. Oh, yeah. Amazing. He talked about a new term. I I don't know if it's been used before. It's the first time I've heard about it. Structural stupidity. (laughs) That's good. I'm just blown away by this term, like the same way that certain terms were um, enlightening to me as I as I started to work with them, like political industrial complex says a lot about the problems in our political system. Um, And and structural stupidity is not just a condition of what's happening in our political system, but a condition of what's happening in a lot of institutions where the way the incentives are now set up and the way these institutions are working really creates that. Um, and you have a hard time, you know, doing something else, but so we should remember that term. The other thing that I do want to bring up though, because you mentioned, um, you mentioned about the country being so divided. I think you and I know, and I will say this to your listeners, even if they don't know this fact that they might, it might resonate with them inherently 67% of the country constitutes, according to researchers, what they call an exhausted majority. Yep. So it is really not that the whole country is so divided. It is that the only people whose votes matter in party primaries are so divided. And then the rest of us are that exhausted majority. And what we want to do in altering the system to change the outcomes the system delivered is to re-empower that 67% that is the exhausted majority, to essentially re-enfranchise them to make general election votes matter again, which by the way, takes doesn't mean that anybody who might be on a more extreme part of this one-dimensional uh, you know, uh, line that we have on our politics, they still have an equal vote. Mm-hmm. They don't have no vote then. They just don't have veto power. Correct. That's where we Correct. need to go. Yeah, no, I love, I also, I read your article with Dr. Jonathan Haidt. And uh, as I already gushed about 
with my hands. I've I've studied that man specifically because of his first book is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. And that book actually helped me more than any other specific book as to what's going on in our body politic. And Sean, our mutual friend who introduced us, we come from the ad biz. And so in the ad biz, we understand what Dr. Haidt was talking about specifically, and I'm breaking it down in a Reader's Digest version. But he said that liberals look through everything through two lenses. It's harm and fairness. And people on the right look through two lenses, which are sanctity and order. And if you look at personality traits, there's the big five personality traits, and marketers use them to sell things. Our body politic does the same thing. And that's what he was talking about. And the fact that he broke it down that way and then talked specifically what you're talking about, which is the minoritarian parties of 10, he says 8% on both sides. And those are the most vocal and the most outrageous. And that's kind of where we are today. And the neat thing about this book, because as someone who is a political wonk and attempting to truly understand more so through emotion than systems, that's why your book was so profound for me because it's not overly complicated. <laughs> it really isn't. Now, specifically, how do you get it done? Obviously, it's going to be much more complicated. But the brass tacks of what you guys are talking about, you guys being you and Michael Porter in this book, is the system itself is broken because the current system we have today was made for what we have. So it worked. <laughs> and for us to actually get to, like, I guess maybe we, you want to jump to the primary piece, whether you want to get to the voting, or I don't know exactly how best to break it down. You have the five forces in here. Is that something you want to talk about? Because that kind of gets to the, the rivals and the buyers and the those yeah, pieces. Are, I, how best do you want to break it down? Because I'm just learning no, the system. No, I, I love the analysis. I mean, I wrote this whole book about it and before that a report, but I am finding that people are super hungry for the solution. So I yeah. out of that analysis, I'll tell you, your uh, listeners, uh, two things. One, read the book if you want to understand really the the theoretical basis of the solution that we will soon talk about. Um, but the second thing I will say is there's one point from that analysis that is worth bringing up for everybody here. Fundamentally, in in my book and my work, I fault our political system as being a uniquely anti-competitive system where we do not get the benefits in politics that we get from healthy competition in other industries. So think of right. competition in free markets as delivering yeah. results, innovation, and accountability. That's all part of that system. And we have none of that in our politics. And here is a key reason why. Let me um, compare something for a moment. Think about any other industry other than politics. If you had a thriving industry, like lots of money and power, et cetera, in that industry, and 90% customer dissatisfaction, and only two competitors, yeah. and some entrepreneur would see this extraordinary business opportunity, and they would come in to create a new competitor responding to what customers want. So why doesn't that happen in our politics? Because it never does. Yes. Well, because it, two reasons. One, it turns out that our our parties actually work very, very well together in one particular way. And that is behind the scenes to rig the rules of the game to protect themselves jointly from new competition. And two, because we have an inherent 
problem in the way we run our elections that forces us to a two-party system. We've sort of learned as we've been growing up that we have a two-party system, but we haven't asked ourselves why we have one. I mean, it's not in the Constitution. Although one of my girlfriends did say to me once, she said, oh, I thought Democrats and Republicans were in the Constitution. (laughs) So, um, you know, because that's how that's how much uh, they are a part of our lives. But but it's not. And the fact that the way we vote creates this two-party system is itself the biggest barrier to entry, the biggest um, impediment of new competitors coming in. And if we don't have any new competition, then the current two competitors never actually have to solve our problems or be held accountable for that. Because no matter how disappointed you are, you still likely prefer what quote, your side says, therefore, than what the one other side says, therefore. So um, if we want to see a change in our system, there has to be competitive pressure put on these parties, which is different than saying that three parties is the right number or four parties or five parties. I actually don't care how many parties we have. I care that the current two are no longer guaranteed to be the only two, regardless of what they do or don't get done on behalf of the consumer. So as soon as they have that pressure, it's fine if it continues to be two, as long as they know they could be replaced. Right. You're not actually solving problems that please a majority of the general electorate. And that's what, once we change our system so that that's, what, that's what's required to be successful in the industry, then all of a sudden, those parties will be incented to behave differently, period. That's how it works. Well, that is exactly what you guys talk about. The duopoly itself isn't the problem. It's the fact that it's become poisonous. That's the problem. And so well, it's how the fact is, that it's guaranteed to continue to be a duopoly. Yes, correct. And so Protect. your your system change is bringing as many people, to your point, it isn't a third party system either. It's It's how many people can come to the party and be represented and have a platform and a voice, correct? Yes, although with the new system, meaning new ways of running our elections, it does create an opportunity for third parties to emerge or independent candidates to emerge, but it isn't having the third that will change the, it isn't if we had three that somehow everybody would uh, behave differently. It's that there is competition. Competition drives performance improvement in every human endeavor, sports, for-profit yes. industry um, in, uh, well, in any human endeavor, shall we say. Yes. So how do you do it? How do you bring these extra candidates? How do you bring the new voices, the new entrepreneurial spirit to this system? What does that look like? Yes. So what we need to do is change how people, let's just focus on Congress, although it can be relevant for other right, right. as well. How people in Congress get their jobs and then get to keep their jobs as in get reelected. We need to change how they're elected. The, the name for the change is called final five voting. And that is an umbrella name for two changes to our election system. Let me take you through them. The first is in the primaries, we're going to get rid of party primaries, no more democratic primary and Republican primary. We're just one D and one R advanced to the general election and where the decision was already made. Instead, We are going to have just one primary ballot. Everybody running is on the same ballot, regardless of their party. And all voters get to participate regardless of their party registration or not. So you see all the candidates, you pick your favorite. 
then the polls close. We count all the votes. And this time, the top five finishers will advance to the general election. So again, not just 1D, 1R. In fact, in, let's say, a Republican district, you could easily have three or four Republicans advancing. Or you could have, you know, two Democrats, two Republicans, and an independent or any person from a new party. So that's what we do in the first change. Is there any limitation on how many people can run? Uh, So that depends on the state. So the states make all their own rules about the elections. And different states have higher barriers to how you would get on that primary election ballot. So like in Alaska right now, which already has this system, we should talk about that. Yes. We have 48 candidates running in their first primary under this system because all they require there is a filing fee. I think it might be only like $150. So so it's easy to get on the ballot. So there are 48 candidates and out of that, four of them, because Alaska has an earlier version of my system where it was top four primary, four of them will advance to the general election. Okay, so now we go to change number two. And that is that now in the general election, um, you're going to have these five candidates or in Alaska's case, four candidates. And we need to figure out who's going to win, which is not quite as simple as you might think, because here's what we want to consider. Now that we get these benefits of competition between five diverse viewpoints and candidacies and visions and ideas, Mm -hmm. um, we wouldn't want to accidentally elect one of those five with, let's say, 21% of the vote, which could happen if the votes split relatively equally five ways, that would be a problem. So we need to find out which of these candidates has the greatest support from the greatest number of voters. And to do that in the simplest way, we use what's called instant runoff voting. So in this case, the voter goes to the booth. So Joey, you go to the booth, you see these five candidates and you say, oh, yes, um, of these five, I I want, um, let's think of, well, you and I have a mutual friend, Sean Riegsecker. We'll just use his name here. I want Sean. He's my favorite. He's my first choice. And then if I can't have Sean, I'll take, you know, this other person, Amy, all the way down to my fifth choice, you know, that Catherine Gale over my dead body. Do I want her? She's my last choice. <laughs> And you just rank them. And we're used to yeah. doing this, you know, like, hey, I want yeah. chocolate ice cream, but if they're out of chocolate, I'll right. take vanilla, and otherwise I'll take strawberry. It's super easy for people to do. So they rank their choices in order, as many or as few as they want. Now, when the polls close, we use that information to have the computer conduct a series of instant runoffs. And that is basically a number of rounds of voting. So round number one, the computer counts. We count all the first choice votes. And then the candidates are arranged one to five. And then you eliminate the person in fifth place. They're out. They didn't win. That's it. Okay. That's gone. Now you got four. And, and now we have four. And if you, Joey, had selected that fifth place candidate who's now been kicked out of the race, your single vote automatically transfers to your next choice of the remaining four who's still in the race. Then we count and then round two, count the votes again. And then we, you know, eliminate the person in fourth place and last place. And then we continue through those rounds until you end up in the fourth round when there's only two candidates remaining, just like we're used to seeing. And then the one with the majority wins. It's exactly like a series of physical runoffs, except Instead of you, you don't have to keep coming back physically for another election. You just cast all your votes. Right. 
And um, and this then results in electing the candidate with the greatest appeal to the most number of voters. But for our real purpose, the the benefit of final five voting is what it is the different atmosphere, the different job instructions it creates for the people who are selected out of this system, which is to say, now when when someone goes to Congress, they might be the same congressperson who got elected under the old system, but under this system, they actually can engage in different behavior. They right. can negotiate. They can reach across the aisle. They can make consensus uh, solutions and vote yes on them because they have a path to reelection if they do that. They won't automatically right. lose their primary. They can't, as you were noting, primaries, they can't be primaried. Yeah. Because they can live to make it to the general election by getting in the top five, and then they can appeal to a cross-section of voters and put together a coalition win. So I will close on this solution with this uh, point. Final five voting is not designed to necessarily change who wins. It's designed to change what the winners do, what they have the freedom to do, what they're incented to do, and on whose behalf they're doing it. And that is really I huge rail of, of <laughs> political change, which is yes. change what the winners do and on yes. whose behalf they're doing it. No, I love that. And you made some really good examples in your book specific to that, talking about politicians who are leaving the game for that exact reason, that they can't actually do what they want to do as politicians. And a lot of people go into politicians as much as they have a bad reputation now. There are a lot of good people in politics who genuinely went there to do good. Totally. Right? That's just a reality. What happens is when they get there, they're told by their leaders, here's how you have to vote. Here's the bills you need to pass. Here's where you cannot vote on the other side. You cannot reach across. We break the olive branch. As soon as you start here, we're done, right? So it's like, okay. And that to me was profound because that is what we're seeing numerous, both Republicans and Democrats leaving Congress today, all voicing the same thing. And you also gave a really good example of Ross Perot in 92, when he ran as a third party candidate, which was very rare at the time, and got 19% of the vote. And the reason he got 19% of the vote was because he was fiscally conservative, not in the traditional sense, but he was like, hey, I know you guys are hurting out there, and I'm going to help you guys have more money in your pockets. And that 19% was then, that was a wake-up call for the duopoly because they're like, wow, okay. So basically we need to, as politicians, cater to more frugality specific to our spending. And so what you're talking about with this final five voting is that it allows the candidate to come in, be themselves, make friends with Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill kind of thing. <laughs> hey, let's get some stuff done for our constituents. And to use your earlier number, it's 67% of the people that voted for me want this stuff done. That's a huge, that's a super majority by definition. So you're actually with final five voting, bringing everything to the table that we as the 67% want. So the question is, you mentioned this, it's already happened in Alaska. Isn't it also happening to some degree in California and Washington? Uh, or not yet? No, not so much. So here's here's the thing, there are, an Final five voting is this combination of two changes, which is the open top five primary and then the instant runoff voting general election. Some states have already opened their primaries and gone away from having just one Democrat and one Republican. And those okay. states would be Washington or Ca and California, for example. Okay. 
Okay, and then you. some states have started using instant runoff voting, like I say, some states, a state, Maine. Yes. But then they didn't change the primary. The only state that has done the two things together that create final five voting is Alaska. It's Alaska. Okay. Yeah. And in 2020, they passed through ballot initiative um, what I call final four voting um, because it's a top four primary and instant runoff voting general election. So they're the only one that's done both. And it's it's critical to understand that unless you do both things together, you don't change much. So instant runoff voting, for example, on its own can change who wins, but in almost all cases, it really doesn't change what the winners can do. Because if you put instant runoff voting in a primary, you know, okay, maybe a different Republican would win in that primary, maybe, but not necessarily. But there's still only one Democrat and one Republican advancing, and the decision on who wins is still made in the primary by only 10% of voters. Yeah, you need to have the decision of who wins be made in the general for people's, you know, sort of uh, agency for those winners, their agency to be opened up so that they have more options to cut these deals and negotiate. And if you leave the election decided in the primary, then that doesn't ma- you know, make enough of a difference. And the same point. thing is true if you just change the primary to have, you know, it's not just one Democrat and one Republican, but you still have only two people advancing you, and you don't use instant runoff voting, you don't have any new competition. There's still only two people. It's still too much the duopoly. Right. So final five voting is the only way to go to systemically change something powerful enough to change the outcomes. The other stuff is sort of nice to have. It might make it seem more fair or more representative. But I talk about that as being the booby prize of political change. We don't re- we want it to be fair. We want it to be democratic. We want it to be representative. Yes, those are all good things. But what we also really, really, really want is the people that, who are we elect to get stuff done. And for that, you need final five voting. By the way, final five voting, I actually... I wish I liked top four primaries as much as I did when I first proposed it, because I would rather call this system final four voting because it was really named after March. Yeah, it's, double A's. Yeah, it's, yeah. Say, it's, a, it's got that connotation immediately, right? which is yeah. don't we know that that kind of competition, those sort of runoffs that those brackets are brings yeah. out the best of the best. Yeah, well, you get those you get those Gonzagas twenty years ago that come out of nowhere, and then you get the St. Pete's today that came out of this last tournament, right? You you get those non-entity players that come out and perform magnificently and stun the world, and so that's the same kind of thing you want to do with a candidate that comes out of nowhere that may or and may you not. You also just get and you get what that type of vibrant competition where the best can rise to the top brings, which is yeah, all the talent goes into that game because it gets rewarded. Correct. Um, And the talent gets better and better because they're pushed to get better and better. Our country, despite our problems, we are still the sort of the most important country in the world. We're the we're the leadership country and certainly the leadership democracy, despite our problems. People should be dying to be one of our political leaders. And, Correct. and thank goodness for all the people who still are willing to put themselves up there. <laughs> having said that, exactly. there should be more people who want to compete for this. We should have an abundance yeah. of, of good talent. And yet we find ourselves constantly feeling like we're having lesser of two evils elections. That doesn't make any sense, right? In every no. other industry, we're like, it's all about the talent. It's all about the talent. Right. You're right. 
and and any and you would change and and that's what we find in our sports teams who can get the talent and yet we're content with these rules which by their very nature they they depress the talent going into the system because the talent knows that they're going to have no agency when they get there and they also don't want to say what they'd have to say to win their party primary great points yeah and so the one thing as i started reading this i was like this really makes a lot of sense but there's got to be some major problem. I mean, there's got to be. So I kept reading. <laughs> so it was just because not that I'm a pessimist, but our political bodies, you know, it's definitely uh, problematic. It's not as difficult as I thought in the sense of, well, can you explain to me how we get this done state by state? Because that was not as cantankerous as I thought it would be. Yeah, I want, I want to do that. But if I could answer a question that you didn't really ask, but I'm going to pretend I heard. Please. Okay, which is, which is <laughs> what could go wrong with this system? Okay. You know, like, what are the unintended I mean, consequences? What could go this? wrong with this system, Catherine? Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you for asking that, Joe. Oh, you're welcome. Very astute interviewer. <laughs> um, here's, I am very excited about the system. There is no question. And then, and after a while, people, you know, it's sort of natural to say, well, it can't be perfect. And here's what I want to note about that. I agree with Winston Churchill when he said that democracy is the worst form of government out there, except when compared with all the others. So democracy is messy and hard. But what we have now is we have messy, hard, and really bad results to show for that. What we will have with final five voting is a democracy that is messy, hard, and so good results to show for all of that. Right. And that is utopia for democracy. Agreed. Right? So this is not a Pollyannish and then everybody will come together in kumbaya form. We have super complex problems with huge trade-offs. I mean, if we had easy problems, even our crummy system would fix those. Right. So our problems are not going to get easier with final five voting, they're going to be as hard as ever. And the trade-offs are going to be there. But now our institutions will be institutions that that exist under the incentives to work through those problems instead of the institutions that they are right now, where they create what we referred to earlier as this structural stupidity. Yes. Because that's all the behavior that's, you know, incented. So, so that's my point about, you know, is it, are we too Pollyannish? Definitely not. Uh, this, what could go wrong? Yeah. And democracies are just, they're just very perfect. You know, I, I actually think that what it, I was at a dinner party once years ago and my friend Cynthia said that her favorite form of government is um, benevolent dictatorship. And if it and works, I, it's the most efficient, the most efficient, <laughs> no efficient, question. Okay? And then we know what happens is the benevolence goes away and then so does the efficiency and yes. effectiveness. So, um, so if we want the democracy, we want this healthy competition, um, the best of the best competition to solve our problems. That's what final five gives us. Now, the next question, which you're getting at, um, is how do we get it done? Now I was shocked by this when I started looking into everything we needed to change in our political system. Turns out that, well, let's think about this way. So, you know, a lot of times we use four quadrants and things. Like my co-author was Michael Porter in Harvard Business School. They constantly have four quadrants, okay? And you, you categorize things in one of these quadrants. So let's think about it this way. 
if you have a vertical axis, axis that is how powerful something is, and then you have a horizontal axis, which is how achievable something is, and you want to say, where is any particular political reform in this uh, on these axes? Turns out that final five voting is basically up here in the upper Top right box. quadrant, right? <laughs> it's super powerful yeah. and it's super achievable. Yes. Because other things people spend all their time on, they spend their time on campaign finance reform. They spend their time mm-hmm. on term limits. They spend their time on proportional representation and electoral college. Gerrymandering. Yeah. And gerrymandering. Yeah. Okay. A bunch of those need constitutional amendments. You and I, were, we look very young. I just want to say that today. But we are going to be dead. Okay, we're going to be dead before we get a constitutional amendment on any of those things. Oh, my God, yes. It's so, not happening. Let's, no. Right, so it's not happening. So we might like them. We might dream of what they would do. You know, but we're not going to get them. So achievability is, uh, I don't know what I can say on podcasts, but... You can say anything on my show. Ruthless metric, okay? Which means that a ton of things you can't do, like proportional representation... Congress has to change a law to get proportional representation. I actually don't like proportional representation, but I don't even bother debating whether it's a good idea or not because it ain't going to happen. Right. So turns out very few things are actually achievable. And then out of those things that are achievable, um, what's powerful? So something that's achievable could actually be, for example, a national day off for the general election so that everyone yes. can vote. But yes. that wouldn't be powerful. And we you left the existing system because they'd go and they would cast their votes that don't matter. Right. So how would that help anything? Powerful and achievable is what we want. And here's why final five voting is achievable, because uh, for your for their, you know, uh, viewers who are viewing, I will hold up this pocket constitution. It is tiny. OK. And in here, in article one. It gives all the power over the rules of elections to each state individually, which means that every state can switch from their current election system to a final five voting system on their own. They don't need the say-so of Congress, and they don't need the say-so of any other states. And in half the states, they don't even need the say-so of their existing legislature. So that's how Alaska got it done in 2020. They had a ballot initiative. So people know about this from California, where you are, where they're always having Proposition you know, 5. Oh, yeah. And the citizens go in and vote. And so so in all of those states and half the states, you can put a ballot initiative on that says, do you want final five voting? Yes or no. And if, you know, 50 percent plus one of people want it, then it goes into effect. And that's how they did it in Alaska. And and that's how and and we're going to see one or two ballot initiatives on the uh, ballot this November of 2022. I should note also that in Alaska, it cost $6.2 million to win that ballot initiative. Okay, now that's extraordinary. The country spent, the total amount of money spent in that in those two Georgia Senate races in January of, of 2021 um, was almost a billion dollars. For two individual yeah. Senate races, yeah. for $6.2 million, Alaska changed the incentives ongoingly for every member of their state legislature, their statewide offices, you know, governor, lieutenant governor, et cetera, and then their whole federal delegation, which is, you know, three people, their sole House <laughs> uh, member, and their uh, two senators. So 
in terms of achievability, that's just remarkable. Now, our next ballot initiatives are not going to get done for only $6.2 million. No. But the relative amount of investment for the ROI that you get from that investment is so extraordinary. I think of this as being basically the most powerful uh, political philanthropy out there today. It has the best ROI of any investment in political change. And if my memory may be off here, but didn't you talk about something like that even for a state of California could be done for 20 to 25 million? So I, so in California, California is difficult to say. I, I, I don't know if California is going to end up costing only 20 to 25 million or if it's going to, going to cost 150 million. Okay. I really don't know. I, here's the thing, 50 states, they all have two senators. So I would tend to say that those of us who care about this uh, will want to invest and supporting leaders in states where it's not going to cost as much as California. Um, And that the average, I think, will turn out to be around 15 to 20 million across the country is what I'm guessing. It depends how much opposition you get over time. And it's also possible that over time, everybody realizes that this is shockingly reasonably win-win. So here's what I mean by that. Let's take all the existing people in Congress. We're not having layoffs. Okay. We're not getting rid of positions. There's the same number of jobs, right? So you can run and you can win under this system. And then if you run and win under this system, you can actually do things. Because you will not be a prisoner of just 10% of your people. You will have better job satisfaction. You'll get more things done. You know, and assuming that's what you went into politics for, it will be more rewarding. And you have more agency. You don't just have to, you can't be under the thumb of special interests or your party leadership in the same way because they can't take you out in a primary. So you're a lot more powerful on your own. And by the way, you're a lot more powerful on behalf of your state. And then the second thing is, is that the parties can actually thrive under a healthy uh, competitive system because they will, they'll have every incentive to grow and have power. In fact, there'll be probably more money in campaigns, not less money in campaigns, but because now votes will be more important than money. It doesn't really matter the absolute amount of money. What matters is if money's more important than votes and now it will be the other way around. So I don't, so I, I don't know if over time we might get the first number of states done and then eventually it will just be a best practice that gets adopted and it won't cost the same amount of money. We'll have to see. But here's the thing. The other reason why this is powerful and achievable, Final Five voting is that the sweet spot of powerful and achievable is because we make an incredible difference in the country even if we only change five states. Here's why. Think about this. Alaska plus four more states having final five voting would give us 10 senators, 10 senators who are, as I call it, freed from the tyranny of the party primary. And those 10 senators would still, in most cases, be Democrats and Republicans. Maybe you'll start to get an independent in there or something. But they are Democrats and Republicans who, in a sense, form a bench of folks off of whom can come those people to form the gang of six, the gang of four, the gang of eight, to solve, to find the consensus way forward in our complex issues. And since the Senate's pretty equally divided, you know, 50-50, yeah. 
as soon as 10 of those people have the freedom to form this swing coalition on a consensus solution, they alter the stalemate, the gridlock stalemate that currently exists. So we don't need to change it in 50 states to change the results. And even those of us who are not, who don't live in the states to change the rules, we will benefit from the deal-making opportunities that then exist in that Congress. Right, and to your point in your book, if we can agree that we don't really like our politicians statistically, <laughs> here in California, Kevin McCarthy said, I hate this idea. And Nancy Pelosi said, this is a terrible idea. So if that's the case, we know that it's working because if our politicians don't like it, it should be to our benefit in the sense that everything you're talking about, they didn't like the idea. But if you have 10, and this is another thing too, once you have a prototype that works, much like in the business world, right? It's you're like, okay, we got our, our MVP, right? <laughs> we're going to come in and we're going to run this, our most viable product. Here it is. Test it. Alaska, California, Washington, maybe Oregon, maybe a couple other progressive states that can move in that area. That happens pretty fast. And so that, again, is not just in the Senate, but the Congress as well. So then you're starting to see people that once they get elected can, in fact, reach across the aisle and or vote for something that is specific to their constituency in their Democrat, in their actual district. And because of that, they are satisfying that 65% or 67% versus the 10% minoritarian. And that, again, just to reiterate, it's getting this on the ballot. How does that work? How is this? How do we do it? I, I'll tell you, but first, let me say something, which I only, I only vaguely mentioned before. The first states that adopt this are going to really benefit because do you know how much power someone has when they're potentially a swing vote on an issue? They have a lot of power. I mean, you see that with Mansion and Cinema. They and get to cinema. things. Okay, so yes. And by the way, it's sort of a problem when you just have one or two people doing that. But if you have you know ten people ten. plus the yeah. existing people who are already swing votes, there's a lot of deal making possibility in that. So, um, so the the Congress people and senators from those states will be able to wield that power, um, you know, to help benefit what their constituents might want. That's a good point. Um, now you say, how do you get this on the ballot in these states? Okay, so again, two ways to change these rules. One is through ballot initiative, and the second one is through the legislature. So in the states that don't have ballot initiative, like the one I'm from, Wisconsin, we need the state legislature to pass a law and then the governor to sign it, and then that's how final five voting would be changed in those states. Um, in, in the ballot initiative states, most, all the states have different rules, how their ballot initiatives work, but in general, it goes like this. You have to file your ballot initiative and then you, you, the organization that wants to see this on the ballot collects signatures that from citizens in that state. And you reach a minimum number of signatures, depending on the rules in the state. And if yep. you get a minimum, a certain number of signatures that are very, verified, valid, then the ballot initiative is on the state, is on the ballot. And then once that's happening, then you have to run a classic campaign. So you do the classic campaign things, you know, um, paid media and yeah. PR, and you have uh, 
you know, surrogates speaking out about why everybody should be yes. So you run your yes on two campaign and, and, and get the votes. And that's, you know, what it, uh, that's what it takes. So in California as a ballot initiative state, we could actually come in and say, we need 80,000 signatures. I'm just throwing this out there Mm -hmm. to get final five voting for us in 2020, and I guess it'd be 2022 as an example, maybe 2024. You don't have time in 2020 more. Almost 2020, 2024, we would say that that's our goal. And for that, just for the listeners, we, once that's up and it's on the ballot and we vote for it, we could actually, as a, as a state say, we did, we're done. We're, We're changing everything that is our body politic today with this initiative by implementing final five voting in 2024. And every one of you, all y'all, everyone on the right and the left, we get to bring our candidates, all of us to the table. And maybe it's 48, like it was, and probably not in California, but let's say it's 20. Now you got 20 candidates. You got your Green Party candidate, you got your independent, you got your Republican, severe Republican, very right, very left, whatever. But you get this just booyah base of candidates and you're like, yeah, now we can choose. And this could happen as early as 2024. Exactly. And, and here's what's interesting. If you, if you win on the ballot in California in 2024, you won't have your first elections under that system until 2026. 2026. But yeah. the behavior of your representatives we'll can change, change immediately. and will change yeah. right away because yeah. they are incented not by the election they already won, but by the election they're going to have to win later. So they have more agency to make deals, you know, right away. Let's look at, let's give your listeners some specificity by looking at how this is playing out in Alaska. Please. Again, we said Alaska passed Final Four voting in 2020. This is their first elections, and they passed it not just for Congress, but for their whole state legislature as well. But let's talk about the congressional races there. So their single congressperson, Don Young, passed away, God bless him, earlier this year. And so his seat is open. Now, interestingly, he was the longest serving congressperson. He had been in that seat for 50 years. 50? Uh, 50, five zero? Five zero. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. And Good he was him. running again. And now they have to have a special election for his seat. So the primary will be June 10th. And as we said, 48 Alaskans registered to run. And what I'm told by Alaskans in the know is of those 48, there are eight or nine really legitimate, substantive, talented candidates. Okay. And let's say there's 12 or let's say there's you know seven. Point being, there's a lot of people right. that seemed to the people I've spoken to to be legit, like reasonable, good, talented, accomplished uh, people who could legitimately say I I could represent this state. And out of that, after the June 10th primary, four of them, so four of the eight or nine, you know, um, four of the 48 will advance to the general election, which will then, and this is the general election of the special election, and that will take place in August. And then they'll use instant runoff voting. So of those four, the one with the greatest appeal to the most number of voters will advance. And by the way, this will be crazy. The general election for the special election happens, I can't remember what day in August, but it happens on the exact same day as the primary for the November elections. 
Wow. Yeah. So, so the, this general, this special election, whoever wins that in August is only going to serve until, you know, the next one, until the next one. And then they have to win again in November. Wow. That poor person. (laughs) Right. Yes. Or, or they might serve for two months and then someone else, someone different, but, but I think what's really great is we can say, look, it is not, here's the thing we know about this. It is not going to be a lesser of two evils general election. They're going to have four. Yeah. And we're going to run a customer satisfaction, you know, survey to see if the customers find this process so much more satisfying because they see, you know, people that they would like to vote for and there should be a serious debate, et cetera. Um, and their seat really hasn't been contested for 50 years, right? So right. we went from, and I'm not opining on whether Don Young was a great congressperson or not. I'm just saying there hasn't been any competition right. there. And now they're having this great competition. The other race that people will be paying a great deal of attention to in Alaska is their Senate race. So the current senator who's up is Senator Lisa Murkowski. Mm-hmm. And as many of your listeners and viewers may know, uh, Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski has, uh, is so sort of on Trump's hit list yep. uh, because he doesn't feel that she supported him and she voted for his impeachment. Not just he yes. doesn't, she hasn't supported him. She voted for his impeachment, Correct. et cetera. Um, so what you're going to see in Alaska is, is this election, and I'm going to contrast it with how the election would have been. So let's assume that in 2020, Alaska had not passed final four voting. What would have happened is if Lisa Murkowski had still decided to vote for impeachment um, and then wanted to run again, basically she would not have been able to win the Republican primary because the Republicans who turn out in that primary would pretty much for sure, have elected Kelly Shabaka, who is the Trump-supported challenger to Lisa Murkowski. And they would have, she is the one who would have won the Republican primary and then gone on to the general election in November, already guaranteed to win because it is a red state. Correct. So 10% of Alaskans would have chosen their senator and it would be a done deal. Which is exactly what you talked about in the beginning of this chat, right? That 10%, yes. Now what we see is that, uh, and interestingly, we think of Alaska as a red state, they have more, um, they have more independent voters than, I don't know, than any other state. I think they have over 50% independent voters. Wow. And only 24% Republicans, maybe, and like 13% Democrats. So, I didn't even know that. <laughs> right, but you wow. really not, because independents yeah. have no voice, you know, right. and they might be right-leaning independents, but point being, um, they haven't been able to participate because they, they're not even allowed to vote in the primary, right? So it's only been this small slice of Alaskans that has controlled, you know, everything. So now what's going to happen is that Kelly Shabaka is running and is endorsed by Trump. Um, and then Senator Lisa Murkowski is running. There's a Democrat running whose name I've just forgotten, and then and then a few other people. Okay. Okay. So in this primary, there won't be 48, but there'll be, you know, a number of them. And who's going to advance out of the primary in the top four will certainly be Senator Murkowski, Shabaka, the Democrat, and one other and person. Maybe an independent. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Then we'll see. Okay. So then in the general election, we actually do not know who's going to win. Right. 
And right. It, it is, it's amazing. And it's extraordinary. That's it. Why won't people, people want to participate in that. Actually, I saw, I saw it a headline in the Washington Post the other day, and it was talking about the uh, NBA championship. And it said, we have no idea who's going to win the NBA championship. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and that's how competition should work, right? Yeah. And that's the best yeah. competition you wouldn't know. So that's what it's going to be in Alaska. We have no idea who's going to win the uh, the Alaskan you know, Senate race. And isn't that wonderful? So they will compete, those four, for the vote, you know, for the votes of their citizens. And then in November, I predict it will be either Shabaka or Murkowski. Okay, it's not gonna turn, fun fight voting doesn't make red states blue. No. Okay. No. But here's and here's the thing. It could, it could be Kelly Shabaka. This is not a protect Lisa Murkowski bill. This right. is not a that only elects moderates. What we know is if a majority of Alaskans would like to support and vote for Trump's supported challenger to Murkowski, then that's who will win. If that's right. what the majority wants in the general election, that is who will win and that's who should win. But if a majority of Alaskans would like Lisa Murkowski to be their senator, then she will win and they will have the chance for her to win. Whereas in the other system, they weren't gonna have that chance. They weren't even gonna be allowed to have that choice. So they were going to automatically elect, you know, a minoritarian, a potentially a minoritarian uh, candidate. And now whoever is elected is going to be elected by a majority. And then when they go to the go to Congress, they can act on behalf of a, of general election voters and not just on behalf of their narrow slice of party primary voters. So it's going to be super interesting um, and and really show what it is to have true competition in elections. And then out of that, what people elected out of that kind of system can can have the leadership to accomplish in Congress. And God, oh. by the way, here's what we should say. God bless a man named Scott Kendall. So I wrote about this in 2017, but I didn't create Alaska. A man named Scott Kendall read my work and and he was you know, searching for what needed to be done to change things. And then he was the one who created that ballot initiative committee. And then um, I was able to help and be involved. Um, but it was him and multiple other, you know, amazing Alaskans, of course, who then got that over the finish line. And they have really shown uh, shown what's possible. So God bless Scott Kendall, I like to say. That's incredible. And that started in 2017. This is another thing too, that I wanted to get to is that as someone who studies politics, I wasn't aware of this at all. And oh. I don't, yeah. How, how does this become more of a mainstream discussion? And obviously you're doing your best with your, with your political uh, mm -hmm. nonprofit, but like, how does this, because that's 2020, it happened. Alaska has final five voting. It's happening. I know. And nobody knows. Nobody yeah. And, knows. and by the way, I don't, because it is not overly complex, uh -huh. right? That, and and again, the analogy of Final Four is wonderful because people can relate to that. It, it, it connotes right back to, oh, okay, basketball tournament. It's a tournament. <laughs> We're going to run a tournament. It's not an election, it's a tournament. We're going to have the final person, the best player is going to win the trophy. Yay. <laughs> oh, great. That. I'm going to say that, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> and you did that. I mean, and so 2020, why is it not being talked about more? 
that's the thing I do. I mean, it's it's not in anything I've read up until yeah. you know, till Sean introduced me to you. And then I read this, and this is why it was so it was it was such a neat awakening because I think a lot of people like myself who are exhausted by our politics, specifically the venom that goes back and forth yeah. and the lack of lack of any actual accomplishments or legislations or anything that needs, and we need it today more than ever. This system itself, to your point, it's not going to fix all that ails our, our citizenry, but as far as getting the best candidates possible, which is very important, but I think to your point, it's even more important that it allows our elected lawmakers to do what they want to do when they become elected. Yeah, it, eliminate, it eliminates the incentives for structural stupidity. Correct. <laughs> thank you, John Hyde. Yes, thank you, sir. Yeah. Yes. No, that's okay. fantastic. So why haven't we heard of it? Um, you know, yeah. it was a new idea. It was just totally new. And it really took me a long time, even get people in the reform space to take it seriously. A lot of people were really into um, instant runoff voting alone, what they uh, many people call ranked choice voting, or they were into just nonpartisan top two primaries, like what California did, or they're into a bunch of other things that are not as powerful or achievable. Like we talked about, people have already chosen their causes. And this was just invisible to people. I talk about, um, I talk about this work sometimes as being like the emperor has no clothes work, which is we first have, at, we first have to say, no, 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 you're never going to get there from here with this existing system. Right. You aren't going to be able to have the change candidate that fixes it because they're under the same incentives, you know, as every other uh, player. And so there's got to be a tipping point and there, there will be that tipping point. So nobody's heard of it, but a lot more nobody's have heard of it now than had heard of it you yeah. know, six months ago or right. a year ago. Well, it is new. Uh, and, and we'll definitely yeah. hear about it then when Murkowski um, and Shabaka are facing yes. off because it's possible, right, that the, that um, that that race, you know, gets an enormous amount of attention because all these races where uh, the Trump part of the Republican Party is competing against um another part of the Republican party are getting a lot of attention. And so when people talk about that system, they will, um, it will get more attention, but essentially in the democracy, it requires individuals to take action. So I think this would be, I'll try to use another sports analogy. You know, we had, um, just shows my age, you know, be like Mike. Okay. Michael Jordan. Um, we need be like Scott Kendall. Yeah. Be like Scott. Be which like means Scott. if you like this, seriously, lobby you, for it. I'm talking to you, whoever is the you that is listening or watching, yeah. you need to found Final Five Voting Ohio, Final right. Five Voting California, California, Final Five Voting. This is how it starts. That really is the democracy. So you might not be able to take it all the way to victory in the two years that Scott Kendall did it in. The movement has to start. And by the way, I mean, people are founding these things all the time. And, and, and it can be as simple as you go on Twitter and you create, you know, final five vote in California and you start rallying people around this. And you, one of the things that's really helpful is you send them to watch my TED talk so that people have gone from never having heard of it to right. having heard of it. Yep. And then if each person tells five people, it 
really does uh does take off. What is my friend Peter Peter Ackerman, a really pioneering um leader in this in this space of of political change and and anti-duopolistic uh behavior who just we just lost Peter Ackerman. He's a great, great man and we just lost him. But he would Sorry. always tell me that you know, that there are these stages of ideas and I'm going to see if I can remember what it was. The first one was like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and then the second one is, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. It, you know, it would be okay. And the third is, oh, I, I, I'm going to really have to remember what he said. It's way better when he said it. That really, <laughs> but, but it ends up something like, oh yeah, I knew it all along. Right. Right. You know, like that's where it ends up. It's like the Herman Miller chairs. I don't know if you ever watched that that saga. Oh. You remember how popular those Herman Miller chairs were? The big, they're like oh. the perfect. Oh yeah, yeah told, right in the tenth during time, the dot com. Those chairs. Everyone had that. So in user testing, ugliest chairs air you've ever on seen. Chair. Yes, air, air on, on chair. chair. Ugliest chair I've ever seen. No one will ever buy it. It's a piece of shit. It'll never work. <laughs> Best selling chair ever. <clears throat> but so and another thing too that might happen. This probably won't. But what if it did? What if an independent candidate won in Alaska? People would say, oh, how did that happen, right? Because to your point, if the demographic is 50% independent and there's a genuinely strong independent candidate in Alaska that could either take some of the votes or even if they do a parole and this independent candidate gets 19% of the vote, people are gonna be like, wow, Alaska's forever changed because of final five voting, forever. So the, your, your idea is the Tesla of politics. Right. It comes in and it just reinvents what a car looks like. It reinvents what an electric car looks like. That's the difference. I mean, that that is to me why I was so struck by this book and this system change, because as someone who's become a bit of a nihilist with our politics, I was like, yeah, this actually works. And that was where I was trying to get to earlier is like, what's wrong? What am I missing? How is this? How is this doing? And to your point, if we can get it on the ballot, if we can get four states, five states to actually have this in the next say four to six years, that will change because then other states can be like, no, I like that too. I want to be able to vote for a Green Party candidate or an independent candidate or Bob from the local general store because he's a good dude, you know? And I think he'll represent our, our district better than this knucklehead that we elected the last yeah. four elections. More yeah. choice, more voice, better results. Wow. That's well, you did a great job, but I'm way over. Can I just say... Oh my God! Thank you, the Tesla of politics. I mean, that's that's really great. If you could spread that along, it would be super helpful. I, well, it's it's the first thing that popped into my head because this it was. If you remember what electric cars looked like <laughs> before Elon Musk, right? They had like it was a weird looking car that covered the back wheels. Covered the back wheels for some reason. They had no horsepower. There was no performance. They were just shitty cars. So it was like, yeah, electric cars are shitty. Final five voting is so unique and so cool. It, it is. It, it's. That to me, again, I was trying to poke holes in it as I started reading. I was like, I don't see the problem. And then historically, anything to your earlier point around making changes to our constitution and amendments of those constitutions, it's never going to happen. <laughs> we can't even get a majority, much less a supermajority on anything and everyone agreeing at the executive level. So yeah, it's not going to happen. And you're over. So you've done, a, I'm, I'm making you late for your next meeting. So let me just say this, Catherine, I really appreciate your time on the show, even more appreciative of what you've done specific to the system and how you've got it out there, how it is now in a state that we can watch for 
2022 and see exactly what happens when innovation takes over an election. So kudos to you and yours. I'm thrilled that you're doing this. I'm thrilled this is happening. And as a pessimist in politics, (laughs) I am very optimistic about this. So thank you. Joey, thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.